Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. So, Mark, great news about Word in Your Park on June the 3rd. We've already announced we've got Bob Stanley talking about the Bee Gees. We've got Leslie Ann Jones talking about the Rolling Stones. We've got John Higgs talking about the Beatles and James Bond. And now we've got, tell everybody who we've got, Mark. This is very exciting. We've got our old pal, Claire Grogan. She of Altered Images, who's going to talk about, well, essentially 40 years of being Claire Grogan, but so many good parts of the story, aren't there? Tell the story about how she got the job on Gregory's Girl. Yes. Which is working in a spaghetti restaurant as a waitress or whatever. At the age of 18, I think. Age of 18. She talk about just the whole pop circus of the 1980s, which is just riveting. The time we were at Smash Hits, just a glorious era. And uh, what else did you do? She was on Red Dwarf, wasn't she? Absolutely. She she once told a story about going to Red Dwarf uh, conventions, sitting there signing signing photographs of the kind of people who came. It was really interesting and funny and very affectionate, wasn't it? She's always interesting, she's always funny, and she's going to be one of our guests that were in your park on June the 3rd uh, this year. This takes place at Opera Holland Park. We went down there this week, just have a look at it. They're building the uh, the fabulous covered uh, covered amphitheatre. What are you calling it? An auditorium. A covered auditorium. auditorium. So it's a perfect combination. It lets the sunshine in, but strangely enough, it keeps the rain out. And we were in a position also to inspect the luxury toilets, which are being installed, if anybody's bothered about that kind of thing. Uh, bars, all the comforts of home and more take place on June the 3rd. Holland Park, Claire Grogan, John Higgs, Bob Stanley and Leslie Ann Jones. Be there. Tickets below. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We're recording this the day after the sad news about uh, about uh, Barry Humphreys, a.k.a. Dame, Dame Edna, a.k.a. Celeste Patterson. And what a man. It was so lovely seeing all those old clips on the telly last night. He was really good, wasn't he? Well, he's been a part of my life one way or another for almost as long as I can remember. I was trying yeah. to think about this. Because he, I must have seen him on telly in the 60s, in the early 60s. But I certainly was aware of him as the guy who wrote the, um, or invented the strip in Private Eye, The Adventures of Barry McKenzie. Do you remember this? I do. 
kind of Aussie, uh, Aussie in, in Earl's court, you know, and introduced us to the strange kind of, frankly, vulgar vernacular, which we always associated with Australia ever since. You know, when he talked about going to the lavatory, it was all straining the potatoes. Siphon the python. That's right. A chunder in the old Pacifico. <laughs> he did. He did. I mean, I think Australians must have been a bit fed up, really, of the of the damage he did to their cultural reputation, which took years for them to kind of. Uh, but he made up a lot around. of that stuff, didn't he? He just yeah. completely invented it. It was a fantasy <laughs> on the kind of uh, on the basis of material that derived from Australia, I suppose. But he, he just kind of he just embroidered it. And then yeah, there booze, was booze and sex, wasn't it? It was a wonderful thing. Sex is the most beautiful thing that can take place between a happily married man and his secretary. Do you remember that? You <laughs> <laughs> always said, oh, I was born with the priceless gift, the ability to laugh at the misfortunes of others. It's just it's at the heart of most comedy, actually. <laughs> and then, of course, there was, uh, well, the lady was first of all known as Mrs. Edna Everidge. And then slowly kind of, uh, you know, he'd stroke of genius. And it took him quite a long time with Edna was to present Edna as housewife superstar rather than being kind of a mousy individual that was rather disapproving. And suddenly he took to going on stage wearing sort of extraordinary kind of lurex gowns and so forth. And and strewing gladdies all over the, all over the stalls, you know. And, uh, you know, from that derives so much of the humor, you know, and it's really interesting to think with, with the humorous people, how they will be remembered. Because you and I, having grown up with Barry Humphreys and his works, we've got all that stuff in our heads, haven't we? But, you know, when we go, it'll go as well. You know, I, I, I don't know. It's interesting. You know, that, that when I think of the, 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 com- the comic performers that I most love, people like Hancock, I've completely internalized all of Hancock. I know all the scripts. They're all in my head, you know. But you don't so, feel that his reputation is being sustained, do you? Do you, for, for, I mean, well, he is in my, my kids mind. Got no idea. Right? No, absolutely. That's no, my point. Your kids have got no idea who he is, and your kids, well, probably know Barry Humphreys, but you know, next generation probably won't. You know, which is, which is a shame. You know, but um, do you remember at Smash Hits? I don't even remember this. Bev Hillier used to work at Smash Hits. She went to see the Dame in the West End in his pomp. Uh, in the eighties, I did too. When, it, when yes. he when he did a show, well, didn't he used to run a barbecue on stage and used oh, to get yes. people out of the audience to come and turn the sausages? And I think Bev was one of the people that he called out the audience. Fantastic! <laughs> what a wonderful memory that they all had to wear kind of Dame Edna pinnies, you know? Yes, and, and help help the Dane. At Mount the Barbecue. You used to uh, pick on people. I, I saw him once in some Soho theatre, must be in the early 90s. We'd always pick on people in the front row. So people were terrified of sitting there. One of his things, he's always gone on about clothes, you know. I remember him pointing to one woman and saying, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find a word to describe the clothes you're wearing. Affordable. <laughs> <laughs> people would talk about their ambitions in life and things they wanted to do. He said, well, you've saved on clothes. <laughs> I was thinking, so I remember a Dame Edna special, I don't know from when, how far this would go back, probably the 80s, where he, he was being in, Dame Edna, the Dame, was being interviewed by Sue Lawley. 
Oh, um, God, yes. And, and she said, Tao Sue, I, I can't do the voice at all. She said, you look as if you could do with something hot inside <laughs> you. hot inside you. And the, all those gags are mostly kind of sexual innuendo. Absolutely. But the key thing is that the word hot, hot. the way oh, the right. way Dame Andrews said hot, with a slight choke in the back of the throat, it was absolutely amazing. He did a and, brilliant routine once on Parkinson, I can remember, or Celeste Patterson, and he was talking about how his wife, I think the dog had hair in its ears or something, was there some kind of discomfort. So his wife was going to go and buy some hair remover. So she goes to the chemist to buy this hair remover, and the guy says, look, this is strong stuff. He said, if it's for your legs and arms, you know, don't leave it on for more than 10 minutes. You know, If it's for your face, you know, wash it with soap and water every 10 minutes, and, and you know, you'd be very, very careful. She said, actually, it's for my schnauzer. <laughs> you can see where this is going. He gives her a long look and says, well, don't ride a bike for a fortnight. <laughs> the Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So this week I went to um, the building in Great Marlborough Street uh, near Oxford Circus which was formerly the home to Marlborough Street Magistrates Court and is now a kind of chic hotel that has a preview theatre. Uh, and there to see a film about who, who is connected with Marlborough Street Magistrates Court. Well, it's Brian Jones. I'm trying to remember why. Was he, did he, was he there on, uh, was he in the dock? Well, I think Mick was in the dock there. I, I, I don't know if he have a dock in a magistrate's no, court. Do I don't know. No, no. But there's famous footage of Mick Jagger, and you know, this is mid sixties. Mick Jagger yeah. and Marion Faithful and various members of the Rolling Stones appearing at Marble Street Magistrates Court. So it was considered an appropriate place to unveil uh, Nick Broomfield's film documentary about Brian Jones, which is going to be shown on Arena on BBC in the coming in the coming weeks and um i'm always fascinated by brian jones do you know what mainly fascinates me about brian jones mark which strangely enough well, the, film... the same as what fascinates me which is the yeah, well, children the... he had but go on oh well the, that's one thing yeah now the thing that really fascinates me that i don't think gets sufficient serious critical notice in the whole brian jones story and I happen to know, because I'm old enough, to know that this was massively significant, is his hair. Yeah. His hair was the key thing about Brian Jones. Yeah. His hair was the Imagine. key thing about the Rolling Stones. It was, you know, whole careers have been based on Brian Jones's hair. The birds would not exist without Brian Jones's hair, yeah? Michael Absolutely. Clark was, was recruited into the birds because he had... Brian Jones's hair. Yep. Nobody had had Brian Jones's hair before Brian Jones. Since Brian Jones, loads of people have had Brian Jones's hair. You know, it popped up in the Stone Roses. Tim Burgess of the Charlotte. Absolutely. All yeah. these kind of people. Stone Roses all had uh, Brian Jones's hair. I was sitting, sitting there in the preview theatre with Bobby Gillespie of Primal Scream. Brian, Brian Jones's, Jones's hair. hair. You know, for goodness sake. And of course, Nobody ever really talks about it because that was the, the, the big problem about rock and roll and hair. There isn't an awful lot to say, but it's hugely significant. It you know? Anyway, the thing that I, I, I want to just mention here is how amazing it is that Brian Jones never wrote a song or never successfully wrote a song. 
Which there must is, have been the, the, the heart of a lot of his um, misery. about Absolutely. It was his group. He'd formed the group. He was the kind of spiritual centre of the group, wasn't he? Cannonball, Adderley, blues, R&B, all the things, that, the heart and soul of what the Stones were about. And then suddenly he's usurped by the people who are, A, taking control of the band and B, making all the money. Well, I obviously didn't realise that they were making all the money until a bit later. That's, that's what tends to happen, isn't it? But yeah. I, it's, it's very interesting that it was Andrew Oldham, who, don't forget, was only 19 or something at the time when he was handling their affairs, which is just extraordinary thing. But he had already had some experience working with Brian Epstein and the Beatles. And so he knew that what really mattered was ownership of your material. And therefore, this group, who previously had only ever done Jimmy Reed tunes of Bo Diddley and Muddy Waters and all kinds of people like that, it was really important that they somehow generate their own material. And so he identified, it was him who said to Mick and Keith, you are the songwriting team. Now, and they used to tell a story about he locked us in a room and wouldn't let, us, wouldn't let yeah. us come out until we'd written a song. And strangely enough, the song they wrote was Tell Me, which is on their, their only original tune on the first album. It's Terrific actually not, not a bad song it's at all, song. For a, for a, certainly for a first effort. But it, he, he identified those two who would write the songs. And, you know, that he must have seen something in them that was more than just musical. He must have thought, these guys will finish the job, you yeah. know, because... Any clown can start writing a song. It strikes me, it's like any kind of creative endeavor. What matters most is can you finish it? Is can you get it to the end? You know, can you get it from a few marks on a bit of paper to something that's identifiable like a picture? And obviously he thought that Mick and Keith could do that. And that somehow Brian couldn't. Well, and there is proved right, wasn't he? He was proved right. And there was there is a, a tape featured in in the film of him trying to write a song with a guy who worked on Ready, Steady, Go. And it's just a reel-to-reel recording of him singing a bit of it. And then you can hear Brian goes, no, 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 no. It just stops. <laughs> you know, that's enough for that kind of thing. Yeah. Know? And um, it's like he couldn't, he sort of couldn't face the embarrassment. Because if, if you're going to create anything, you have to be prepared to go through that, that period when it's not finished when it looks a bit pathetic. And you've got to stand it up. You've got to support you, it. You've got to believe yeah. in it. You've got to say to everybody, persevere, because I know in my head I can imagine yeah. what this is going to sound like. Yeah. Which yeah. he never could do. And also, never, not a singer. So that's, you know, that, that's part of it, isn't it? You know, uh, part of the, the whole the whole process of being the integral member of the front line would be to be actually up there with the microphone. And there is a bit where he's being interviewed on American, there's quite a few clips of them in the early days being interviewed rather unsympathetically by the hosts of um, local TV shows in, in America and Australia, where, you know, they do that thing where they're, they're, they're singing on, on a stage and at the end of the number, the kind of uh, the presenter, who's generally a guy from local news, comes on with a microphone, sticks in the, in the face of the, of the first person he comes to, and he goes, so how do you write your songs? And, he, of course, he's pointing the microphone at Brian. And Brian has to say, well, I don't. And he looks really embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he, and the guy continues, 
asking questions. Said, you, you really ought to speak to Mick and Keith about that. So the guy shuffles across and puts the microphone in front of Mick and Keith. That's a terrible it, moment. That's an awful moment. That really time. is. That sums it up. That exposes everything. That's, that's, that's really, the story of the Rolling Stones at the end of 1968, 69, there in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, it's a, it's an interesting film as he always is, as Nick Broomfield's films always are. And of course, Nick Broomfield also has the distinction of being able to say he met him, met Brian Jones on a How train. Did he made him on a train. He was going back to school in the West Country, and there must have been a train on the way to Cheltenham or something. And Brian Jones happened to be on the train with him, and he struck up a conversation with him. And at that stage, you know, Brian Jones was already a famous member of the Rolling Stones, but he had a chat with a 14-year-old schoolboy, which obviously made an impression on him. I'll tell you the other thing that's interesting that applies to documentaries about bands in the 60s and earlier and that probably doesn't apply at all since is that there are traces of letters so you know when people wrote fan mail to the rolling stones they very often wrote it to brian and brian very often replied and so people keep the replies and the replies seem to come you know you look at this guy who was kind of rolling around you know looking like the kind of Pirate king of rock and roll, yes, Master, Lord of all surveyed. But but when he sat down to write a letter, it was like Jennings and Derbyshire writing home from boarding school. You know, dear Jane, thank you very much for your oh, letter. It's a really and the formal cake. and polite, oh, really formal. Oh, and how funny, really you know. well brought up. Yeah, yeah. And that, because it's the same thing with the Beatles, isn't it? You, they they wrote back to loads of fans, didn't did. they? In the, in the early days. And it's the same thing. Who obviously, <laughs> obviously kept those letters, you know. It would have well, been you, you would, you know. God, yeah. But it's the fact that they sat down and got out a pen and wrote back to people <laughs> at the height of Beatlemania Beatle well, so or much Rolling Stones. It's absolutely extraordinary. Nobody would do it nowadays. No. So Brian's kids, how many were there? Was it five? Was, some some sources say six, don't they? But I think it was certainly, certainly five. five. Certainly five. Five, all illegitimate kids. And I think he'd had four of them by the age of, what, 19, was it, or 20? And weren't quite a number of them called Julian. Because quite a Jud- number called Julian. There's one called Julian who was, yeah, by, by the girl who eventually, Linda Lawrence, who went on to marry Donovan. Yeah. So there's a start in life. You're Brian Jones's son and you're brought up by Donovan. <laughs> My God. Who puts the bins out? <laughs> this is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. I saw this tweet from Massive Attack in the light of the uh, uh, AI-created uh, music for Rory that's um, running and running. And, and, and the tweet says, this presumably comes from Massive Attack Central, from the Politburo of Massive Attack, is the discussion, should AI recreate music? Or is the discussion, why is contemporary music so homogenized and formulaic that it's really easy to copy? That's a really I good thought, point. That's a really good That's point. a brilliant point. <laughs> I, was, um, I was directed today to a, a YouTube page with a load of demonstrations of AI, um, you know, um, do Kanye West in the start of the weekend or, or or whatever, you know, people demonstrating how to do this. And of course, I have to confess, it's completely lost on me 
because I'm not really clear what the original is supposed to sound yeah. like. You know what I mean? And I'm sure that's the way, that's the way a lot of people w- will respond, you know, that, um, I mean, is it the case that contemporary music sounds more alike than previous contemporary music? And if so, as, is that a direct consequence of the technology employed in making it? And is it also a consequence of the fact that most of it is made by committees? Because if you look at the writing credits on, you know, a top 10 hit, it may be as many as 10, 10 different people. Now, yeah. they haven't all sat in a room together with a blank sheet of paper, but some bits will have been provided by this person some bits will have been borrowed by a re- from a re- an earlier record by this person and 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 put together in that fashion so they will have possibly less of a of a distinctive fingerprint than they might have had 40 years ago do you think there's anything well, there's in a, that there's certainly something in the idea that you might be using very similar structures uh, or in fact the exact same structure it's been in another song. So that's something to do with it, I think. And uh and also the fact that there are certain there are certain elements of 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 of, of pop songs that make them commercial and those tend to be the things that you know, because they work, people then tend to do things in exactly the same style because it's a proven success. So there's probably slightly less of that sense of experiment, isn't there? Yeah, and uh but it's also the other thing that's that's kind of inescapably bound up with this is just how much music there is nowadays. Well, that that I think is a big part of it because you know I I I, I really miss the old the old system the old A and R system really because if if you and I had, had a group in the nineteen seventies you know we'd have to compete against God knows how many others to get a record deal in the first place because we couldn't make a record without a record deal. No. without the money coming in. And that process cuts out a lot of groups who didn't deserve to or somebody thought shouldn't have been making records. And then having got that deal, you've then got the A&R process of saying we only want 12 subs because recording was so expensive. So you're concentrating. They already are whittling. With, there's an editing process, isn't there? Yeah. There's yeah. an editing process that just isn't there now, that you can just produce something and think, I'll try it out, and if it works, it works. Because, you know, the one thing we know... There's no doubt about this at all, that it's harder than ever to have any kind of success in music. No doubt about that at all. But, you know, if you get success or top success in music, you can make a fortune. You can make more than you ever made before. But, you know, to join that elect gets harder and harder. Now, this ought to be putting people off. But if you go and look on the streaming services or in any list of new releases, it's it's no indication that it's putting people off whatsoever. In fact, there are more. There are more than ever. More new stuff coming. Yeah. You know, and I go and look on, on the streaming services, and the first thing that, that kind of depresses me is that um is that they have to sort the music into category categories to have it you know, make any kind of sense to people. So if you're, if you're faced with a kind of menu of what there is, 
you first of all have to look at pop, rock, jazz, classical, electronic, soul, funk, R&B, metal, hip-hop, rap, blues, country folk, soundtracks, world, reggae. And by the time you got to the end of the list, you think, oh, I don't feel like it anymore, actually. No, no. <laughs> the moment's it. gone. It has. <laughs> exactly. It has. Rather than let's just slap this on and see what it's like. <laughs> Absolutely. Or let's go into a record shop and go, oh, that looks interesting because there's also, a big display giving, near the front or whatever. It's giving you the opportunity to not be surprised by things because you're you're channeling it into stuff that you already like. And so, yeah, uh, that's, yeah. that's disappointing. But also, how how meaningful can it possibly be? You know, do I already like pop rock? Do I already like electronic? Yeah. It doesn't work like that, does it? doesn't it, at all. You know, you like you like certain and things. Nor do you think of it in those categories anyway. You just don't. Now, the other thing about AI music is that, and I think you and Leslie wrote a thing about this this week, that actually um, making a fuss about, you know, AI records being produced in the style of Kanye West or, you know, Drake or whoever, it's kind of beside the point, really, because what do people want? They want, if they like Drake, they want Drake. It's Drake that's the interesting thing, isn't it? <laughs> See, I think that's interesting because whenever you listen to music, it's not like you're just listening to the music. You're not no, in not. your head. There are two main associations. One is is the is the the people who make that music and your connection with them and their story. And the other is things that have happened in your life that you can associate with listening to that, to which it was a soundtrack. And those two things are a kind of human element, aren't they? Yeah. About yourself and about the people involved. Yeah. Which you're not going to get, presumably, from an AI recording. You know, so if, if somebody somebody came along tomorrow and said, we've got AI doing Radiohead or Bruce Springsteen. If you're a fan of Radiohead or Bruce Springsteen, do you consider that good news or bad news? I think you consider it bad news. Immensely bad news. Because <laughs> what you want is Bruce Springsteen done by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. You know, Bob Dylan done by Bob Dylan. You know, Bjork done by Bjork. Not something that sounds like it, that, that is generated by a machine. You know, I know sh- that, that there's an a Oasis uh, AI, isn't it? AI, indeed. And, oh, right. uh, and that Liam, Liam Gallagher has made a great point of saying how much he applauds it and thinks it's fantastic, which is so typical of him because he can't possibly feel that way. But he's just doing it because, you know, he just wants to kind of, you know, create a ripple, doesn't he? It's exactly the opposite of what people would expect him to say. The Word Podcast. Clearly, there is no plan. I don't know why I was thinking about this this week, but the, the, the kind of polar opposite of the present-day glut of music of recorded music and the kind of AI controversy is I was thinking back to, I think, the year 1972. And um, my father had a small business uh, which had a small warehouse and he had four people working for him. And at one stage he did his back-in and I was at college or whatever, just finish it. And uh, so he needed me to go home for the summer and, and kind of look after the place because he couldn't work for a, few, for a few weeks. So I found myself working in a, in a warehouse in Yorkshire during the summer. During the summer, the Take It Easy by the Eagles came out. <laughs> and Was that permanently on the radio? Again? No. Oh, this is my point. Oh, right. 
I heard it once. I thought, oh, I really like that. I really like that. And then, as was the way things worked back in 1972, when there was probably only one radio station that ever played a pop record, and that was Radio 1, yeah? which was probably partly shared with Radio 2 part of the day, I think, you know, so. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There was no capital radio, there was no independent commercial stations and so forth. There was Radio 1. And so you thought, I want to hear that record again. And so I would be in this warehouse and the only radio was a crappy FM transi- AM transistor on the other side of the, of the this warehouse where there was kind of noise going on all the time. And I'd I'd be working away, physical work, and I'd have to, you know, listen when it got to the end of any any tune. Are they going to play it next? Are they going to play it next? And often days would go by without hearing it at all. I remember this so vividly. And then when you'd invariably go out, you know, for a cup of tea or whatever, and you come back in, and it was halfway through. Yeah. And so you'd feel this combination of excitement and disappointment that you'd missed the beginning. So the point is, the point I want to make is, my affection for Take It Easy by the Eagles, which is still burns quite brightly all these years later, is all down to the fact that I went days without being able yeah, to hear it. And they, it was not being having access to it that my, my affection increased. The only way you could have heard that is to buy a battery-operated record player and buy the record. Oh, and uh, then buying the record would not have been easy. No, that wouldn't have been easy. Yeah, if you're in West Side of Yorkshire in 1972, and this is a re- by the Eagles, you know, that wasn't in the charts at that point, you would yeah. have... That would have been a long shot to get yeah. that. You might have done, but, you know, and then could you afford it? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. whereas anything now, you click, it's there, you hear it, 
you play it again, you play it again, you play it again. And inevitably, You're Satan. halfway through it, you immediately think of something else and click on that. So yeah, it's absolutely. It's, you know, so it, it's a fundamentally different world of listening to music. And so are we surprised that we don't feel the same about it that we used to? We shouldn't be surprised at all. Not remotely. There just should be, there should be much less of it. And it should be harder to find. <laughs> the Word Podcast, walking the digital dog since 2007. We're joined by Alex Gold. How are you doing, Alex? Are you all right? I'm very well. Good. Very well. We're thinking about revivals. I was thinking about revivals. Don't ask me why I was thinking about revivals, but I was. And uh, I was wondering if we're still going to have, in, in future, musical revivals. Because it struck me that musical revivals were a big part of kind of pop music history. And so, you Some know. very the, significant, weren't they? Absolutely. Totally. Well, the first one I really remember, because I'm so old, is the kind of the trad jazz revival yeah. of, the, of the late 50s, early 60s. You know, Kenny Ball and his jazz man, Chris Barber, you know, all Agabil, all that sort of stuff was a, very conscious effort to revive the old Dixieland jazz of the, of the of the 20s and 30s, I suppose, in the face of what they what they saw as the kind of domination of dance bands, and then and then bebop, I suppose, you know. So the the whole point about that music that those people played was that it was kind of swinging music you could dance to and it was simple and you know it was it was the old tunes it was songs but also about. incredibly influential wasn't it because a it gave rock and roll something to kind of rebel against wasn't it and get rid of and b it started in the ken collier set it started donegan doing a skiffle act and that yes produced yeah. the whole skiffle boom and therefore all those bands the beatles and the stones and led Zeppelin were all in their little skiffle groups so that was pretty significant, wasn't so it? So Skiffle came from the trad jazz revival. Yeah. But then also, earlier than that, you had the kind of what they call in America the folk revival. Yeah. Uh, which I suppose is the, it was in the 1940s, isn't it? When yeah. people started getting together, people living in cities who have, uh, you know, never known any kind of rural family life, suddenly start gathering for square dances. <laughs> yeah. That's it, exactly. And... Dressing up like that, like farm workers and all that kind yeah. of thing, you know. And it's out of that that, you know, Bob Dylan and all that stuff. Well, I, I all comes had out. Bob Dylan not, you know, written all those political folk tunes <clears throat> by the time he was going up with Susie uh, Rotolo, you know. I don't, I'm not sure if rock music would have had that big political conscience that it, that it, that it eventually developed, you know. And also, you could argue that the singer-songwriters, the Joni Mitchells and the Paul Simons and the you know James Taylors, all came out of that that folk revival boom too. Well, surely yeah. the, the the Britpop thing in the nineties was essentially a sixties revival, wasn't it? I suppose so. It was really. It was Beatles Kinks, wasn't it? Exactly. Yes. The haircuts, the clothes, all that kind it of was. I guess the haircuts. Yeah. Can't Go wait on. for the noughties indie revival of night of uh, of twenty forty two when a bunch of fifty five year old blokes rapidly expanding. <laughs> Stuff themselves into skinny jeans, t-shirt and tie combinations and trilbies. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> Not wait. <laughs> what will you be doing, Alex, when you're when you're reviving? So, so what what era are you I'll, talking I'll about? Be, I'll tell you what I'll be doing. I'll be kidding myself that my skinny jeans still fit me. <laughs> <laughs> 
You've still you've got a long way to go for that, Alex. <laughs> As I pointed out this morning, you still have to run about in the in the shower to get wet. <laughs> yeah. You can't walk don't dare walk across railings. You're it's a proper thing. first world problem. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you want about the mod revival? The, but yeah, mod what? revival seventy eight, oh. seventy nine. I mean Well it's it continued for a long time, didn't it? It, it also sort of happened in nineteen ninety six, isn't it, really? I mean yeah. it, it, and it's kind of happening now in a, a little I mean it's, there are still mod factions bopping about. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously I'm involved in the Small Faces show and that's the, yeah. I, you know, I'm done. That's part of it. Yeah. I'm a, I, I, I experience the mod community on a, on a weekly basis. So they're, they're still there and they're, they're, you know, they're of all ages as well. It's, so you're, you're involved in a group who kind of do the Small Faces or yeah. the Small Faces story. And so you'll do Tin Soldier and I don't know what else you'll do. What you're going to do about it, all that stuff. Do, do you want to hear about my experience last week, actually? Go on. I do want to hear about you it. do. So we were, it's, we normally play theatres, but this particular gig was at a place called the Concord Club in Eastleigh, which was, back in the day, some kind of prominent jazz venue on, on, on the scene. So it's got a bit of, you know, a historical pedigree, I suppose. But, it, you know, it, as, as of 2023, it's a little bit... Um, it's a little bit downtrodden. Um, <laughs> sort of dinner dinner venue. It's got a little. It's got a slight whiff of Phoenix Nights about it. Right. Um, but anyway, so we we get there and I arrive about three o'clock in the afternoon. And in the room where we're meant to be playing later on, there's another event happening. It's what they call a ladies prosecco afternoon. And <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! They are being Lady entertained. <laughs> they are being entertained by a very enthusiastic Robbie Williams impersonator. Excellent. I just want to feel. <laughs> it's astonishing. Absolutely brilliant. I, I I bet he'd fathered so many children in that room. Yeah. Um, he had, he had all born with a little stripe in their eyebrow. Like Pat Mustard from Father Ted. <laughs> <laughs> so how was he presenting himself? Presumably not with a band. Some no, he had, he had backing tracks. Um yeah, it was. It was. A so what he arrived? He arrived. It's, it's a little bit like those in, in, seeing the always getting a comedy where where the where the strippergram arrives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dresses as a policeman or whatever. <laughs> there is to arrest somebody. It, it, in this case, it was a fat bloke dressed as Robbie Williams. <laughs> was he being was he being manhandled by the? Uh, definitely, uh, it was definitely kind of row. Robbie Williams during his fat dancer from take that sort of period. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, yeah, there was, there was sort of, you know, oh, you know, and I saw that I saw the buckets of uh, prosecco being wheeled out afterwards when they were changing two bins, actual bins full of pre- empty really? prosecco. They, oh. those ladies went hard. My God, rock and roll is not dead. It is, it is fully alive and well. Um, it's a new definition of rock and roll, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Oh, that's but going back to the, going back to the mod thing, <laughs> yeah. You were you were telling me when when you appear doing the small faces stuff, the people who turn out the the kind of elderly scooter owners, aren't they? Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, in, in the nicest possible way, and I mean, I'm say I say this with love. We play to rooms full of gentlemen that look like thumbs. <laughs> That's. <laughs> I've been here to have broke Dave there. Uh, <laughs> 
that's 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 the vibe and it's fine they love it and it's great you know it's great for us we're appreciated they like it you know they're getting a little taste of but, uh, have they got scooters or did they once have yeah scooters? so um what would happen on the... arrive on scooters yeah so what would happen on the musical tour for example so when we used to arrive in a new city for a, for a clutch of dates the local scooter club and there's a scooter club in in most city big cities really? and towns and yeah in the uk absolutely um they would do what's called a ride out and they all they'd all ride out in their parkers and on their scooters with all their lights and stuff on mass and meet us outside the theater then we take a load of photos with them and, they'd and these are blokes these are blokes in their 50s yeah <laughs> and they all dressed to the nines, sharp suits. Fantastic. What are they wearing? Suits par- and ties. Suits, parkers over the top. Um, the, the scooters are all decked out. It's all Jimmy from Quadrophenia scooters. Um, yeah. And, that, you know, there'd be yeah. 20, 30, 40, 50 of them just kind of all riding out at the same time just to park outside the theatre for 15 minutes to take a few photos. It's spectacular. Yeah. See, this, this is what's interesting about the, you know, we're talking about the mod revival. Mm. And that, that is, it's more than a revival, isn't it? It's a whole strain of British enthusiasm that just continues doesn't yeah. it it's it's it probably <laughs> never stopped since the early 60s really i don't think it ever did you know no. it, it, it's always going to be there there is always going to be a corner of the uk that that houses these people yeah and that has to do with clothes it's a lot isn't it oh a lot yes clothes and scooters actually yeah it is and, and the music probably a distant third. Distant I third. Know, I think they, I think they're the three pillars of it all. Really, I uh, think they all they all prop each other up in, yeah. in, in their own way. The music's intrinsically linked with the clothes. Yeah. For example, you can't have one without the other. You won't get a mod that's really into their clothes but not into their music. Um, so now the other thing that used to be a big the other revival feature that used to be a big feature of British life, I don't think is any longer, which is Ted's, because Teddy boys were, you know, invented as a, you know, they were supposed to ape, ape the fashions adopted by dandies in the Edwardian era, weren't they? Yeah. And then they came to be associated with rock and roll, and that was a huge thing in the 60s and in the early 70s. But it's not anymore, is it? Do you see Ted's any I, longer? I never. Never at no. all. There was no. a minor kind of revival around the time of Malcolm McLaren, late 70s, was in the World's End, King's Road. You tend to see a few Ted's, but I mean, I can I can just distantly remember being about eight or nine. You know, the the kind of uh, mods rockers wars on oh, the south yeah, coast, yeah. which yeah, are yeah. fantastic. You know, every bank holiday there'd be Ted's versus mods, and that stuff was thrilling. I think, but no, I think that's disappeared completely. That, and if so, that's an extraordinary thing that that has disappeared. I mean, you don't find yourself sitting opposite anybody on the tube who's decked out to look like Gene Vincent, do no. you? any longer I, I don't i think the key thing is <clears throat> so you know mod music in in inverted commas that's kind of evolved over the years so with your oasises and your blurs and people like that you did get a sort of it wasn't strictly mod but it was kind of it was in that vein whereas ted's they it sort of evolved with the times is what i'm trying to say and with rock and roll which is intrinsically linked, linked to ted culture it, rock and roll is kind of preserved in amber that three that that 12 bar progression is is off its time and there isn't there wasn't a 1990s version there isn't a 2023 version so no maybe not the, maybe the, not who's to say it won't happen at some point in the future indeed. what's the next thing that'll be revived i've no idea i've no because i always think there'll be a could, psychedelic revival but the, the, those things only happen that, during prosperous times it's good times that can allow for things like psychedelia you know well, I, I know you could say, I mean, there's whole kind of 
scenes, isn't it, where people just love that kind of music and yeah. dress in those kind of clothes. That's that's sort of never gone away, really. But you know, I I don't think people have the same nostalgia because we all live with all this stuff all the time nowadays, don't we? And so we always say that young people with music, they hear all kinds of music, but they have no sense of chronology because they don't need to, because it's all just there permanently. You know, all those groups are there forever. Um, so they don't hark back in quite the same way. Yeah. So it seems. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe... Right now, somebody's uh, you know, reliving the heavy, heady days of 2012. I'm telling you, that note is in the revival. It's coming. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. Well, it's the 40th anniversary, I think, of uh, Come On Island being number one on the Billboard chart. My God, was, was it? Tonight. Number it was one in America? April 23rd, yeah, in 1983. Amazing. What a fantastic record. And it just made me think, you know, if you've ever been to a wedding reception or whatever and somebody puts on Come On Eileen, it is absolutely guaranteed to fill the floor. Is it still? Is oh, it yeah, still? I think so, yeah. When's the so. most recent wedding you went to? No, that's true. I haven't been to a wedding for three years. <laughs> but it's certainly <laughs> my niece's wedding. <laughs> but I just thought that was an absolutely guaranteed... Do you think it's kind of out of date? I don't know. I don't know, Alex. You've probably, you've probably well, been to weddings more recently. Than the last me. wedding I went to was a punk rock wedding in Berlin. And oh, they were playing yeah. Too Drunk to Fuck by the Dead Kennedys. And Was, uh, that, was that what started uh, the dancing? I'm talking about a, a multi-generational Other experience. assorted classics. No, I think it is still played at weddings. Oh, my, that song is indelibly stamped on my memory. The first time I ever heard... I don't know why I always remember this, but I was on holiday at a kind of holiday camp in Lou in Cornwall yeah. oh, and, and they stuck it on I just remember the dance floor immediately filled up with loads of people dancing with their hands behind their backs oh really okay. I think I think it's aping a move from the video they do it for like a three second yes period. that's true isn't it oh right um, okay well I'll always remember that for some reason uh, and yeah it's, it's just, I still hear it I still hear it in shops I still hear it uh, do you yeah. think it's one of those tunes that if you play it as it's a wedding disco uh, do you think it's one of those things that blokes feel that they have permission to dance to. Yeah, I do, actually. I think there's something about the way that Kevin Rowland sings it. It just makes it feel like it's okay to do It's not that. soppy. It is, yeah, exactly. It's not, though, also, is it? Also, anybody can sing along with Kevin Rowland and not feel, feel they're being upstaged. <laughs> yeah. Not exactly the classic singer, is he? No. But there are just certain songs that work. I think Hey Yar is another one. Oh, but, uh, both I think Crazy classic. in Love by Beyonce is another yeah. one. Oh, Crazy in Love, undoubtedly. It's phenomenal, Rick. You stick that on, absolutely anybody of any age will, will, will think that's okay. Let's Mr. Twist Again. Twisting Mr. the Bright Side. Yeah, 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 well, you're always back for Let's Twist Again, don't you, Yeah, Mark? Dancing Queen. You can't go wrong. Dancing Queen, you simply can't go wrong. Um, I'm a great believer in Van Halen's Jump. Oh yeah, yeah. That's got that's, a good that's got that bloke thing, you know. That bloke sees all right now. You know, yeah. you can come out. You know, um, your theory is you have to put records on that get girls dancing. Once the girls are dancing, the boys will dance. Yeah, the boys just got to get get pissed enough. I mean, yeah. the book. The truth is, the boys want to dance as early as the girls do dance, but they're just too self conscious. The guys don't dare. But I can't remember who I was talking to about this the other day. That, okay, Alex, here's, mm. right, I'm going to try this on Alex. 
it's a live experiment. Go on. <laughs> Go on. I, I'm a younger person. <laughs> Have you ever, <clears throat> Alex, during your checkered and colourful <laughs> dating career, <laughs> have you ever crossed the floor of what could be called the dance floor, either in a dance hall or in a club or in a scout house? Have you ever nervously crossed the floor towards a girl to whom you have never previously spoken and then asked her if she'd like to dance? Have you ever done that? I have. I, I, I've gone one better, actually. Um, yeah. Oh gosh. So I, I was in, <laughs> I was in Florida with the ukulele orchestra, and I'd made a plan to meet the guy, some of the guys at a club down the road for a couple of drinks. We had a day off, and I think I'd been out that day, and so I was, I was already a little bit merry, and I walk into the club. And there's a girl dancing in the club. I was in my leather jacket and my skinny jeans with my, my snake my snakeskin boots with a chain on, long hair. I was, I was looking pretty <laughs> what a vision. Pretty weird that day. It was good. Um and this girl just beckoned me over and before and yeah, and we just went straight in for for a big hearty snog. It was great. And then we started dancing. And then and then after yeah, the song, before Alex, he's done, Alex, we went our separate ways. Alex Alex, that is exciting story. That though, that is. That's and I've been thinking about it for weeks. That's that is not the same. That is the polar opposite of going up to a girl and saying, "Would you like to dance?" That's a girl pretty much inviting you to sexual congress. That couldn't be further away from the thing. No, we did do dancing though. We did dance. I, okay, well, you didn't ask her though, did you? Uh, well, in a, in a way, no. Um, you see, okay, sorry, no, the school, school, thing no, that we went through when we were school kids, discos, it was terrifying, you did. wasn't it, Dave? So you did that at school? You did yeah, it. school discos, you, the, the boys would be on one, one side of the hall, the girls right. would be the other, all sort of shuffling their feet, looking really nervous, yeah. and, and one would be the seal breaker, like the, eventually there'd be one guy or one girl who'd sort of venture across and ask someone to dance, and then it was okay. So you know. asking someone to dance is, is as old as, as human history, okay? It hmm. goes back, Jane Austen goes back, Tudor times before that and so forth. It's a long tradition. And then it disappeared about 30 years ago. It disappeared with clubbing. Because with clubbing, from what I can gather, yeah, people, people go out in the groups. They go out in groups. groups. And you might find yourself somehow through a bit of manoeuvring, dancing with somebody. Absolutely. But otherwise, you're not actually saying it's you and me. No. Because if you go across, <laughs> you know, if you go, went across the the dance hall of the Mecca Ballroom in Wakefield in 1965 <laughs> and approach, approached, you know, um, Angela Noble to, to, to pick, He's listening pick, to, hello, Angela. pick a word, pick a Do name out of nowhere. Yeah. <clears throat> you weren't just saying, would you like to dance with me? You were, you were saying, I fancy you. Were you? Absolutely. Were you? Totally. Were, which, and that was the kind of sixties equivalent of uh, of asking uh, asking somebody's father if you could pay his daughter attentions, wasn't it? You know what I mean? It was completely. It was kind of formal, wasn't it? Which is why it was so mortifying if they said, no, "I don't want to dance." Oh, good God! Uh, because yeah. and even there was no excuse. They were just going, "No, I'm much rather just stay here, not even talking to anybody. Actually, on my own, I'd rather <laughs> be on my own, sitting <laughs> here with this cigarette and this glass of baby sham that I would be dancing with you." <clears throat> 
I know. <laughs> it hurts. Still hurts. <laughs> it still hurts. Well, if you've had experiences of, um, you know, of that or being rejected, even better, we want to hear them, don't we, Alex? We Absolutely. want to hear them. We do. We do. Yeah. Yes. Come on down. Share your pain with us. The Word Podcast. What's wrong with being sexy? And it's time to celebrate the birthday of one of our valued Patreon supporters, Andrew Newbury. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you very much. Good Have you had the birthday? Uh, yeah, it's nearly four weeks ago now. We were in uh, Napa Valley. Oh, very good. Enjoying oh, the finest wines available to humanity. Absolutely. Really. Oh, yeah. yes. what, are, what, are they, what are they called? Si- that film, Sideways. Is yeah, film? yeah. It's a film. Which it's I must there, go and it? see again. Yeah, it's a really good film. Uh, we, we re-watched it a few weeks ago just before we went away. It's one of those films that's uh, there's more angst in it that you remember, actually. It's quite a yeah, dark film. I'm sure. All, here's the truth. All the films that used to be funny are now slightly dark. Because yes. because morality has so kind of yeah. changed. I was talking to Mark. I, I watched Manhattan the other day, and, and you can't watch Manhattan without going. Oh God! Oh yeah, these days you think yes, and actually it's too close to the bone, isn't it? <laughs> so anyway, you've got a, a log you wanted to throw on the fire. I do indeed. Yeah, my theory about the Beatles is that... Oh, we, we always work, like a theory. We like Beatles. a Beatles theory. Um, we can work it out. Is the fulcrum, maybe the tipping point of Beatles songs. And I think it's more about Lennon and McCartney rather than the Beatles generally, and whether it's the song that really signalled the shift of Paul taking control of the Beatles away from John Lennon. You know, because the, there was a double A side... And it was we, we Can Work It Out was the one that really got the airplay, so essentially became the, the A side of the song. But also very unusual in that <clears throat> it's one of the rare examples of one where they each do sections of lead vocal, don't they? Yeah. Isn't yeah. Paul McCartney a lead vocalist? Then John Lennon sings the, yeah. the, the bridge, the, one of the best middle aids they ever wrote. Life it's great. Bad. And the thing is, people talk about John being the, the darker of the two. And actually, his middle age is quite a positive message. Whereas the main melody of the song, Paul's bit, I think is actually quite sort of a, I was going to say cantankerous, but it's quite a dogmatic approach. We can work it out if you agree with me, if you're on my side. It's actually not as positive a message as you, as you think, I think, whereas John's bit is. See, that we were, that we're, we're talking suspicious uh, coercive behaviour, wouldn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. Actually bullying. <laughs> yeah. I, can, yeah, I, I can remember hearing that record on the radio when it was first played, I was sitting there having tea at home with my mother and my sister, and they played both sides, and I could hear it still. And it was the brilliant thing about that record, as of so many of those great Beatles records, it was a combination of, of the familiar and the unfamiliar. You thought, this is fresh, it's catchy, but it's also slightly strange. And it's going to. What, gonna, I mean, what uh, out? Was it the, the harmonium? Yeah, all that. Absolutely. And it's also, it's all the things like it starts right at the beginning. Mm. Try to see it my way. It's off. You know, it doesn't get you ready for anything at all. Yeah, there's no introduction. It well, just suppose- pitches you in. It's incredibly fresh. Um, and it's one of my favorite Beatles records. Still, I mean, I think you're right about a fulcrum point between the kind of mop tops and the kind of psychedelic. Yeah adventurers if you like the other thing that's odd that mark and i were talking about earlier the other week is how rude day tripper is as a song oh, <laughs> I, yeah absolutely yeah. <laughs> <And how> nobody <laughs> remarked rude. 
fact, no, I think to ride's pretty rude too, actually, but yeah. we just didn't realise it at the time. But yeah. day trip, oh my God, extraordinary. But nobody would have thought about it at the time, I suppose, on the, no, the fact no, that it's on no, you didn't. radio. No, you didn't. People, they, mm. people are a lot less dirty-minded than they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the curious thing. Everybody's really careful about what they say nowadays because they're very aware of all the yeah. it's hiding in plain sight isn't it it's one of those yeah 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 well look nice to talk to you you too and uh, 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 just one little thing in terms of a record to recommend to you go on something i don't know if you've heard oh, is this right, okay is this new yeah yeah it's actually a new release came out about two years ago but it's sort of jazz from the 60s and 70s just oh, right. Some odd things, some well-known people like John Dankworth, right. uh, Sam Tracy, but loads of obscure stuff. And it, if you want a bit of groovy 60s London, it's a really oh, nice really? place to start. Yeah. Journeys in Modern Jazz, Britain. Is that the one? Yeah. yeah. Really yeah. recommend Because I know, Dave, you've been listening to quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, good, good old compilation. Very nice. Oh, very good. Very good. I shall look that up. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. <laughs>